Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Feisty friends, wherever you are listening, welcome to the Women's Performance Podcast. I know I get really excited about all the people I get to talk to through podcasting, and I genuinely love learning from every single one of them. But I have to tell you, this week's interview stands as my favorite ever. My guest today, Jill Colangelo, is a former triathlete and ultra runner who researches the often delicate relationship between mental health and participation in endurance sports. She is is currently a research affiliate at the Department of Forensic Psychiatry at the University of Bern and also writes mental health focused articles for Triathlete Magazine and also across outside media. I welcomed Jill into my virtual studio and it was like chatting with an old friend. Jill and I dove into the work she does as she researches the intersection between mental health and sport. Her master's thesis was published in a Harvard review and looked at the prevalence of anxiety, depression, and addictive behaviors in endurance communities. She had some surprising findings, like on average, mental health tends to decline at higher training volumes. And also, we don't really know whether endurance training causes mental health challenges or if folks with mental health challenges are more likely to be endurance athletes. Since Jill and I have both been endurance junkies ourselves, we discuss some of the negative outcomes that can occur when we put endurance sports and athletes on too high a pedestal. At the end of the day, people go through a lot worse than running a marathon, and we have to ask, who are the true heroes? I found Jill's insights about her own journey as well as the research that she does to be extremely helpful and relatable, and I think we can all learn from her wisdom. Jill, good morning. I mean, good afternoon. (laughs) You're all the way over in Italy. I am. Hi, Sarah. Good morning to you. Yeah, it's so good to speak to you. We talked for uh, we talked for a while there before the show started. So um, I thought let's let's press record because you're saying some great stuff. Um, What you know, tell us a little bit first about like your sports background. Like, did you play sports as a kid? I did. Yeah. So way, way back, uh, you know, like neighborhood softball team, that kind of stuff. I always liked sports. And aside from sports, I was always that kid that was like, 
trying to find trails and getting muddy and, uh, you know, on my bike and just getting into mischief back in the day where we could leave and no one knew where we were back then. Uh, that was me. Always <laughs> when they didn't to... want to know where we were. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're come home, you know, before dinner kind of thing. And, you know, I just loved getting out into the trees. I don't know why I just, I loved it so much. Um, so I always kind of had that mindset of just, I guess, physical activity movement or whatever. So, um, um, field hockey, soccer, lacrosse, all that stuff in high school. I played soccer for one year in college. And then I was like, mm, no. Um, <laughs> and then um, I didn't actually go back to anything that I would consider sort of organized until, let's see, I think I was in my first graduate school program. So that was way back in 98, 99. And um, I started running. I started running and uh running became um somewhere along the way became triathlons and then triathlons became ultra marathons and then you know that's it either goes one to the other or you know either start a triathlon and end up at ultras or go backwards you know so um that was my kind of trajectory there and yeah so that's kind of how it all came together yeah the obsession with getting longer and longer distances is i think a lot of people relate to that right because it's like you know, you do first, you do 5k, then a 10k, like where, where else you go, but longer. Right? Yes. And this is a perfect time for me to like, just stress that like everything we're about to talk about research is me search. I always say, so I am the, I am the poster child for everything we're going to talk about. I was that person. Right. And what happens if I do a little more and what if yeah. I do this? Yeah. So completely hundred percent. I am that exact personality type. So yes. Well, and I think I I wish more people would own that almost like, as I think, and I think research in a way should be me search. Like there's nothing better than like actually researching the things that make you like that are you're passionate about in life. Right. And that's like, that's kind of from what I understand, like how you found your way into your own research. Yes. 100%. So I am, you know, I'm the N of one. It's all started with me. I um, kind of laugh about it now, but it was really kind of serious and scary. In about 2015, I was living in California. And by the way, this is like a side note. Um, if you are struggling with your relationship with sport, probably don't move into the hornet's nest. So <laughs> I moved, yeah, I moved directly to the Bay Area right when I was like struggling the most with um, wanting to run all the time. And completely blew my brains out up and down, um, from like, you know, just, just the whole area. Um, and I was really running so much. I was doing really ridiculous things, training for events, but way training way too much. Um, just kind of, uh, working nine to five during the week and then just spending all my time on the trails. I lived in Woodside. If anyone knows where that is, it's like, you're in the middle of like three parks and, I mean, you could just find endless trails to connect you all the way up and down the coast. So I just did that. I just did that nonstop. I did races. I just ran and ran and ran. And um, I was really starting to feel some massive symptoms, things like that were very scary, like night sweats that were really jarring, um, soaking the entire bed, having to get up, change the sheets, that kind of thing. Um, my legs were starting to feel really dead and heavy. I could, you know, let's say if one um, you know, I was no- normally used to running, let's say like a 20 or 25 mile training run. I found myself unable to do anything more than like five miles. You know, it was like just mm-hmm. pain in my legs and just so many different symptoms. Um, and I was really scared. So, um, I didn't really know what was going on. And of course, probably like many people relate. I, uh, went to doctors. No one had any idea. Anyway, this 
kind of led me to want to research this more. Um, and I really was like, oh man, I want to go back to school and study this. And my initial thought was, do I want to go to medical school? Like, is this a medical thing? Like what's happening? Right. Um, and even though it had medical sort of ramifications, I started to realize that like this only happens because of a decision-making process. And that decision-making process is informed by my psychology. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's kind of a wake up call. Uh, so I started to kind of study psychology. I went back to school, blah, blah, blah. And so now I'm just like a nerd who studies this all the time um, because it's really important. And the more people I talk to, the more I realize there's such a huge lack of information about this. And I really want to contribute to that discourse a lot. So, yeah, yeah, it's super relatable. I'm wondering, just like to unpack that a little bit, like when you say you were doing ridiculous things, you know, you're t- what does that actually look like? Like what was ridiculous for you? Yeah. For me, ridiculous was doing, let's say, and I, I sort of hate to use numbers because I don't want to give people incentive, but right. you know, even my, um, let's say I was running like back-to-back marathons on a weekend just cause, mm-hmm. you know, Saturday, Sunday, just like either 20 and 25 miles or like 20 and 22 or 25 and 25, you know, just doing this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, just getting up at, let's say four o'clock in the morning to run like 15 miles before work, um, which is fine. But if you do that like once, but we'll talk about maybe reasons why that's not such a good idea to skip your sleep to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. and just running a huge amount of mileage, uh, which was way overdoing it for the kind of, I mean, I was an average ultra runner, right? I wasn't a pro. I wasn't on podiums. I just was really obsessed with it. And so I got this massive wake up call when I, I, people probably heard me tell the story before I went on like a, it was like Chrissy mail was she, I think she just wrote her book about training for ultra marathon, or it was one of those like, um, kind of, you know, meet and greet things at like a Patagonia store near Stanford. I will never forget this. And she did like a group run ahead of time. And we were talking and, she was telling me about her like weekly mileage and she was running like in the fifties for weekly mileage. And I was like, Oh, and that sounded God. really low to you. Oh goodness. Yes. <laughs> I was way more right. than that. And I was like, Oh, and then I don't know. It's like, I had this moment and I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but it's like, you hear something, you kind of get the idea that it's important, but you don't really like process it yet. And you're like, right. I think this <laughs> is going to become important at some point in the future. Right. <laughs> exactly what happened so it later on um I filed it away and I played it over in my mind over and over again like since then and you know I think at the time I was running like 80 miles a week or something which doesn't seem like a lot I think in the ultra community but um for me um who I was at the time I had no business running that kind of mileage you know well and for someone who's working as well you know what I mean like that's a lot to recover from for sure for sure yeah and also I'm celiac so um at the time, I really thought that I was like replacing my carbohydrates appropriately. And I really wasn't. I thought that I was, you know, but I just was not, it it wasn't enough. Whatever I was doing was nowhere near enough. In fact, that's one of the things that I wish I knew then is how much more food you actually need to eat than what you think. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah. Yeah. I'm also celiac. And so, and I relate to that a lot, like that feeling of like, not understanding why the fuel isn't even doesn't seem to be like working quote unquote the way it does for other people. And I knew for so long something's up, but I didn't know what. 
Yes. Yes. And I should have known better. I got diagnosed when I was 25. So I should have known better, but I just um, didn't really update my intake to work for the amount of mileage I was running and the volume. Yeah. Right. Right. So you're one of like, I think, I I don't know. I'd, I'd love to know what you think about this, but it's, I think it's a rare person who actually ends up overtrained. Um, there's a lot of fear mongering around doing too much, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I do think that there is like a rare kind of personality type who can push themselves so far that they get to that place where you were just talking about, um, about, you know, having the night sweats or like actually having physical symptoms of overtraining. Is that, that's just my observation from coaching and, and being an elite athlete. Do you find that to be true too? I, I do. And the reason why I will say that is because, so I do like mentoring calls with athletes who feel like they're kind of going through this. And I've talked to so many people over the years, I've been doing it for, for years. And it is very true that everyone I talk to has, um, they are, their relationship to the sport is, has gone beyond training at that point. And they are kind of using this sport to do something. Um, And again, I will totally self-own on that as well. For sure. I was doing that. You know, I was definitely using my training to manage stuff that I struggled with, you know? Oh, I see. So by to do something, you mean manage something else. Yeah. Right. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that um, the type of person who can get overtrained has like a perfect storm of um, very high stress in different areas of their lives, because this is ultimately an overload of stress, which creates overtraining um, syndrome. So a person who has a lot of stress coming from a lot of different areas, um, and they are able to override some real serious um, somatic. So meaning like information coming from your body that's telling you, ouch, this hurts, I need to stop, I'm hungry, I'm tired, all that stuff. So they're able to override that stuff. Um, and they're able to kind of um, have a purpose for their training that is more important to them, I think, than kind of all the other stuff. So it's more important than those stresses. It's more important than rest. It's more important than a lot of different things. Um, some people just really need to achieve that goal. Even if it's like, I will run 20 miles today, they will just need to achieve that goal for many different reasons. And so, yes, I do think that um, I used to, <laughs> maybe this will make you laugh. So when I uh, was first with my husband now back in the day, he was my boyfriend and I kind of got him into ultras a little bit and he is Italian, you know? So, um, he's very much uh, not all the time, but he does have a little bit of like vein of Dolce Vita in there. Right. So (laughs) he would be running and he'd be like, I'm tired. I want to stop. And I would be like, like, yeah, well, we have to run 20 today because you know, you have a 50 K next weekend. And he'd be like, no, I'm tired. And I would be like, well, you don't understand. Like today the calendar says we have to run 20. Right. <laughs> right? And I would scoff at him and I would be like, you're a self-preservationist. Right. Self-preservationist. And it's so funny because that like kind of pejorative term, right. I launched at him. I, I don't think I ever said it to him, but I would like think it, you know? Yeah. I, that is what people need to be. You do need to be self-preservation. You need a little bit of that. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, you absolutely do. So I think that like, uh, you know, I just, I just didn't have any of that at the time. And I think a lot of people don't have it. So that's where we end up here. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tafosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. 
Tifosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tofosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in Feisty Media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein, like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year, and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women, by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. 
how much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. Right. I see. So, yeah. So then you ended up realizing, I mean, wisely, really, that like what you were struggling with, you know, while it did have a physiological effect and medical issues attached to it probably was rooted in some kind of psychology. So off you went to study psychology. And I did read part of your master's thesis. Um, What did you find out originally in that study about like the prevalence of like anxiety and depression, addictive behaviors in the endurance community? Because I think that's, um, I think that a lot of people hearing that might think, oh, that's super relatable. Or I know people or, you know, like our endurance community, we kind of know that people become you know, like we've been talking about already, a little bit obsessive about sport. Um, So what did you find? Yeah, so I kind of naively went into this going like, well, this makes sense. Look at all this research that makes this pop. Like, I think this is a very reasonable hypothesis. And everybody around me was like, what? What do you mean there's like mental health issues in sport and ultra endurance sport? Like sports is what makes you happy and exercise makes you happy and all this stuff. And I just wanted to study it anyway. So I um, surveyed, I actually did the study twice. Um, The one that is published is the second round and there were 700 amazing ultra endurance athletes from all over the world and from all different disciplines who contributed to the study. And they answered questions based on their mental health history. And they did two um, questionnaires to ask them to assess risk for a different mental disorder. And by the way, that word disorder is kind of strong, but that's just how the language is in the chart, right? Um, and then I gave them, uh, so just, just I wanted to ask them about sort of their history and their experience and how much they trained. So I was hoping to find, I mean, it sounds sort of weird to say, I was hoping to find that there was more mental illness in this population, but that is not what I, not what anybody wants, oh, okay. but I was hoping to, to have my hypothesis proved to be true, which it was, which is there was a higher prevalence of mental illness in this population of ultra endurance athletes than in the general population. And then, um, I didn't even plan on doing this, but I broke the data down by hours of week, by hours per week of training. So it was like under 10, 10 to 20 and 20. Mm-hmm. And when I did that, we saw a dose response. There was a dose response. So the more physical activity you were doing in a week, the more likely you were to have a mental disorder. Right. And- Interesting. And then you have a, I guess you probably would have a chicken and egg question there. Yes. Then, right? Sorry. Yes. C- continue. <laughs> no, that's great. Me. Everyone asked yeah. that question. It was so smart because that is one of the things that I'm trying to look at 
isolating now. There's evidence to suggest that it's both, you know, it's either or both. Um, there's evidence to suggest there's certain types of people that gravitate more toward this type of physical activity because it fulfills a need, as we said. Um, there's also evidence to suggest that these like neurotransmitters that we get after this type of physical activity are, they are like a natural opioid, you know, so they may have an effect. There's uh, research to suggest that there could have more of an effect than we think. Um, there's, yeah, there's evidence for both. There's evidence that some of these types of behaviors, whether they are um, our habits, or maybe there's something about those tra neurotransmitters can also create a uh, kind of an addiction situation. So uh -huh. there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff to study with this. I'm very keen to kind of hone in on that exact chicken and egg question. It's something I'm working on now. Yeah. I'm just, sorry. I'm furiously taking notes. Oh, <laughs> that's it. If I look down, that's, yeah. that's what I'm no doing. Problem. Yeah. Oh, cause I'm thinking about all of the times that we hear in, in endurance communities, in triathlon, in Ironman racing in particular, that we're a type personalities, right? Like people who tend to want to achieve things or like to have that busy schedule. And then I'm thinking about myself and how I, I definitely feel some of those things like that there is that sport provides like a mood enhancement for me. Right. And that there is a bit of an addictive quality to that because my day won't be as good without that. I won't feel as happy. Right. Yes. So I think my question is like, at what point, like, how do, how do you draw the line between when it's healthy and unhealthy? Yeah, that is such a good question too. So it's going to be different for everyone, but, uh, maybe I can set it up this way. So we think right now our culture is convinced that there is, um, an unending positive effect of physical activity on our Physical right. Like you can't do too much. Like what? It, right. Yeah. Right. Which we just think that there's, true. Yeah. yeah. We just, we're just like forever and always amen. The graph, the chart just goes straight up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if that were true, then those people in my study who were at the top end of physical activity, they would all be like Buddha, right. They would be like psyched. They would be super <laughs> happy all the time. They would be like, Oh, life is so good. You know, it's like, I'm running so much. Everything's great, but it, that's not the case, you know? So we accept, um, you know, I, I talk about this all the time. We accept a U-shaped curve. Our relationship is as a U-shaped curve with sport, right? We accept that for everything else in our lives. Um, we're like, oh, okay. Uh, if I'm thirsty, I drink water. If I drink too much, I become hyponatremic, right? Athletes know that. Right. Mm -hmm. But we don't accept that for physical activity. We're like, well, I don't understand. I just, in my case, ran double marathons over the weekend. Why do I feel bad? Um, and so there's going to be a place uh, there's going to be a point in that curve at the top where you're getting the maximum mental health benefit and the maximum physical health benefit. But then after a certain point, it's going to drop off because after a certain point, that physical activity is going to become a, another stress on the body and the mind. And it, that, you know, the wheels are going to fall off at some point. And that point is going to be vastly different for everyone, which I think causes the most amount of confusion because we are a society that thrives in comparison, right? So we're like, oh, well, what's that person doing? What's that person doing? And how come she can run that much and she didn't lose her period? And what about that guy? How come, you know, he can run 150 miles a week and I can't? So that kind of thing is normal for our community. But the truth is, is that um, there, it doesn't matter where the point is, there's going to be the point guaranteed. It just depends on, it's going to be in a different spot for everybody. Right. I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've transitioned from being a full-time pro athlete where you're doing, where I'm doing exercise as a means to an end. I make a living that way, you know, 
that focused completely on training and recovery to like, how does exercise fit into my life as a working person who's running a business, who has a daughter, et cetera, right? Which is more like, you know, the average person, right? Um, I I highly, I cannot see you as an average, like even, oh. <laughs> even in that context, Sarah, like, no, but okay, nice try. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sort of average, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm average. I'm average. Yeah, um, yeah. But like, you know, I thought of it about, um, so for a while there, I just, I went to CrossFit just as like my daily hit, you know? And then I sort of realized this is, this is my N equals one. And then, then I'm going to let you um, respond. But like that, like, actually I felt, I feel better if I'm in the process of getting fitter, right? Instead of just like, showing up every day and doing and exercising like mm-hmm. and so I was like oh okay how about I try to set some goals and I try to get fitter in certain areas right and then I, I'm like oh this is like this is a slippery slope you know <laughs> because like you can't get fitter and fitter forever right so you have to plan and I'm like oh at some point I'm gonna have to plan like actually detraining like in order to be training again right? Like it was just, a, I was like, oh, and I felt like I was having this kind of like original thought or something like, because like it pre- previously in my life, I think I had just assumed that we get fitter and fitter to infinity, right? And that's not real, right? Like I was like, it's my own mental check of like, how do we healthfully fit in having, you know, sport related, endurance sport related goals or CrossFit goals um, without like overdoing it? Yeah. You said the keyword. It's like, while you were talking, my brain is going detraining, detraining, detraining. And you said <laughs> right. the magic word. You said the magic word. The, that is the way you do it. So it may sound like a revolutionary idea, but I think uh, things have changed now. We used to be satisfied with a period of detraining every year. We used to be satisfied with this rare fossilized form that doesn't exist anymore which is called the off season you know it's a mythical beast that used to exist <laughs> right. that doesn't anymore right? right um but that concept of having an off season like when i'm sure you know you grew up around the same time i did which is like you know when you were a baby runner back in the day right they would talk about um periodizing training right you have your off season mm-hmm. in the winter and you would build your season back up in the spring and then you would do your races. Like, you know, it was like the early fall marathon and then, you know, all this stuff. Um, And that has really gone out the window. And so the reason why that's gone out the window is again, it's not physiological. Our body still has that same need to train and detrain, right? We're designed to do that. But what has changed is our cultural sensibilities around what that means, right? So first of all, it's like, there's races all year long now, right? Never used to be that way. But now it's like any given weekend, you can jump into a race, whether it's a triathlon, a bike race, uh, you know, anything. There's always something going on Um, because it's become more of a business now. Like the number of races has just grown exponentially. So there's that one piece. But then also we as a society have told ourselves that we need to look a certain way 12 months out of the year. And that informs a lot of not. And I would say I would exclude based on the people that I've worked with. I definitely think that the elites don't always fall into that trap. I think that they have, a depends on the sport, but I think that a lot of elite athletes don't mind kind of like putting on a few pounds when they're not, you know, training and all these different things because they know it's coming off. But I think that that becomes a harder pill to swallow as you start going down in your athletic ability. So when you start going from elite down to age grouper and beginner and all those different things, I think that there's a more pressure to, um, on the, the person puts on themselves. Um, to maintain a certain aesthetic look 
based on their training, based on what they think, you know, a triathlete or ex athlete looks like. And I think that we're unwilling to sort of detrain because for us, that means weight gain or body composition changes or all these different things. Um, and so I would just, the last point I would make about that is that as women, as we kind of, uh, go along in life, our actual needs for physical activity are going to change and there's going to come, I'm like a, I'm a devotee of the Stacy Sims church of like, you know, uh, female athletes and what we should do and what we shouldn't, um, shouldn't do. And I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that our training should change. And like a CrossFit class a week is probably good at 47. So you're probably fine, you know, but it's that whole thing of like, um, not going back to the same things that we used to do and letting our body kind of change. That's what it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And you, you mentioned kind of body image along the way there. I know that you, you know, you work with some high school students on this topic specifically. And I'm, I, I love that first of all, because I think it's especially our generation, like super relatable. I I knew nothing about body image until I saw magazines. And then I just tried to look like that, you know, and nobody taught me about how to eat even properly. I, I feel like even at school, nothing. Um, so what do you tell high school students? Yeah. Um, so I do training sessions for high school. Like right now, the season is like cross country and track teams. Um, and I love talking to high school students. I really do. What is sad though, this is the part that kind of breaks my heart a little bit is that their parents are my age, right? And their parents um, have so much diet culture talk in their homes because these kids come in and they're talking about not wanting to eat certain things, or they're talking about like just these kind of, just the way they refer to certain things about bodies or just their language. And you can tell it like, you know, and they'll tell you straight out, like, oh, my mom doesn't let me have that, or we don't have that in our house, or we don't eat gluten during the week, or yeah, it's like, yeah. So I like almond moms on TikTok. I don't know yes. if you've seen that, but yes. I feel like that's the that's the name that Gen Z is given that kind of yeah. yeah. Um, I don't like that they've gendered it because I think it's everybody, but definitely um I can see that around me for sure in parenting. Mm-hmm. For sure. So there's like a lot of like unraveling. And I, uh, really what I do is that like, I am a science nerd. So by, you know, profession and also just in general. So I try to stick to the science with these girls. Uh, and I say girls, because I typically talk to, to, to women athletes and it's like, I do a lot of debunking. So I'll pull up studies that will say why someone who is not celiac shouldn't be on a gluten-free diet because in all the X, Y, Z reasons, I'll pull up a study that says why they need to be getting more sleep because they're missing out on growth hormone. If they're only sleeping four hours a night, you know, right. why you just go down all the list of their kind of like bad habits and anything they can throw at me of like, Oh, but this, Oh, but that I try to just hit it with science every time. Um, and also some of that is just like training people to look critically at social media And I'm not, you know, uh, it's so hard. That's, I think, like the biggest thing because they're really doing that comparison dance, you know, all day, every day. Not just, um, it's easy to say like, you know, don't look at celebrities, but they're looking at the other athletes like in their town or, you know, in the rival high school. Um, They're obsessed with like any athletes that, like professional athletes that have like food blogs or cookbooks. And I'm just, that you know, is a podcast. If that's another podcast right <laughs> to itself. Yeah. To go down that rabbit hole. So it's, there's a lot of unraveling there. And, um, I just try to give them the best possible foundation because 
they are just getting thrown at them just you know unbelievable amounts of just nonsense 24/7 and i feel like just giving them a, a a foundation of like here's what's real here's what's not and listen to your coach and do less and you know just a bunch of other kind of things it's tough they're under so much pressure these kids they really are yeah and do you think you know you mentioned social media but do you see anything changing in the body image particular in that area in particular for do you see, do you see something changing in a positive way Mm, I think it depends on the generation. I do. So it's, you know, what goes around comes around kind of thing, you know? And so I think that like, we went through this like height of what I eat in a day videos and like all this kind of like, right. uh, you know, and like how many pictures of like the runners that would post their like run with their times, like from their Garmin and then like a picture of them, like hunched over into the camera. So you could see their abs, you know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We went through a period of that. Um, and we kind of moved away from it. And now I feel like the younger kids, um, there's a little bit of like, from what the girls have shown me anyway, like on TikTok, they're starting to kind of move back to the, what I eat in a day sort of thing, or they're doing like, oh. mm-hmm. um, these weird recipes. There was like, <laughs> This is probably, this is a stupid one, but it was like, I think this one was like a year ago. It was like fruit. I don't know if it was like fruit soup or, oh, natural cereal or something. And it was like water with like berries and people like eating this for breakfast or it's way more insidious now because it comes with this like health halo. They'll be like, oh, this drink, this like lemon water to detox in the morning. And it's like, oh my God, my brain explodes of like all the bad science just in that one sentence, you know? So like (laughs) there's, I think there's in some generations, I think like in our, maybe like millennials and Gen X, I think it's a different kind of thing, but I feel like a lot of our bad habits have come back around a bit. Oh gosh. I, I'm, <laughs> I don't like I know. that, but I, I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I watch, um, my daughter watches, has like certain YouTubers that she loves to watch. Right. And one of them did this review. They do review of like TikTok friends and stuff like that, you know? So she's picked some pretty smart people who are like, they're reviewing the bad content instead of just straight watching it, which I, I prefer obviously, but there was a trend that was like girl dinner. Yes. Oh, so <laughs> not good. Yeah. So not good. Where it was like, yeah, just like a piece of cheese and some apples on a plate and then like girl dinner and like what is happening you know yeah yeah Um, I know that kind of shocked me because I thought maybe we were eating now you know like I thought this is our time we can eat now but we're not we're not doing like straight up macro counting in everyone's face anymore we're not like listing our cheat meals or cheat that I think that like that has kind of gone out of the vernacular but there's still other like weirdo stuff about like you know sometimes based on what celebrities are doing sometimes just like weird recipes that become very culty, you know, like it's just, yeah, it's, it's a jungle. It really is. Yeah. It's so um, pervasive. Like I feel I'm kind of mixed about it because I feel like it's not all terrible, but there are terrible sure. things. So I yeah. try to like, just look over my daughter's shoulder. Like what, what is it that you are watching? Yeah, <laughs> you know? That's smart. Um, that's smart. Get, get yeah. in the right TikTok algorithm, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, okay, let's go back. I found something on your Instagram I wanted to ask you about because yeah. this is, and we touched on it a little bit already, but like, you know, you said we have no idea if the positive effects of exercise on mental health stand up through high intensity and volume. So you already talked about that like a little bit, but like, hmm. can you unpack that? Yeah. Yeah. So if we look at like the, um, if we look at the scientific literature on exercise, 
we have an exercise or the effects of exercise, let's say we have a lot of understanding of what happens when people don't do any, right? We have plenty of robust studies right. mm-hmm. that tell us, if you, yeah. right. If you're a sedentary and you don't do any exercise, this is what's going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we have a lot of stuff in the middle. That's like, if you do some kind of physical activity, um, you're going to have this outcome. And a lot of like that 150 stuff, minutes a week. That's right. right? <laughs> that yeah. is the golden number, 120 yeah. to 150, right? And yeah. that's where we see the mental health benefits. That's where we see the cardiovascular benefits. That's where we see a lot of stuff. Granted, I am not speaking of all the literature out there. I'm just saying, just generally speaking, there's a lot of emphasis on sort of a moderate amount of physical activity. A lot of what we know about what happens from exercise is based on that moderate amount of physical activity. Yeah. And so then we say we have mental health benefits at 20 minutes of walking, right? Mm-hmm. And then to say we have mental health benefits at like three hours of like, you know, running or seven hours of bike riding or, you know, two hours of swimming. And it starts to, we're not sure, like the numbers don't really extrapolate that far out, you know, and then you just have an influx of too many other factors that now dilute that message. You know, that data does not, if you think about all the things that now enter into there, you know, from a biological level, also from a psychological level, environmental, all the things that kind of, you just can't say that that would ever hold up as we kind of move out. Right. Yeah. So my belief is that there is a way to do this that is healthful, right? And that allows you to engage in the sport that you love long-term. So you can kind of avoid getting into trouble. It's just that not many of us are doing it. Some of us are doing it. Some of us are doing it. Um, but on the amateur level, the age grouper level, when we don't have the benefit of a coach and a nutritionist and a team and someone who can kind of help keep our us on the straight and narrow, the margin for error is quite big. I think there's a lot of people that um, could use a coach, could use a registered dietitian conversation, um, and they don't. And so we end up in this place where, um, you know, we just kind of hit a wall. So to answer that question, you know, it's like, if we don't know what's out there, we need support, right? So those people were just not getting it because we don't think we need it. It's interesting. You know, I, a few, couple months back, I interviewed um, Olympic Row as our Canadian Olympic pair in the lightweight um, skull. And they were talking about their process of needing to, because they have to be a certain weight in the boat, right? For competitive season. And like what they, and when I heard like the, the amount of support that they had to like healthfully lose like two to three kilos, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like, which is way under mo- a lot of people's like weight loss goals. Yes. Right. Yeah. And they and they do this year on year and they have like a dietitian and their coach supports them and they have all of these, they know, and they're super educated about it. And I'm like, if that's what it takes for elite athletes, like the support and like, should any of us even try, you know, like, like, why not just do exercise and be happy? (laughs) Well, I mean, yes, that is the best question I've heard all day yet. Yes. (laughs) But see what you're saying is perfect for, uh, a community that doesn't attach cultural significance to what they look like or, you know, what they kind of like, how they can maintain a certain body weight or how they can not change at all. Like people don't want to change as they age. They don't want to change as they detrain. Right. And it's like a body that doesn't change is a dead one, by the way. I love that. But that's, true. <laughs> you know? that's I mean, good. come on. Right. Yeah, that's so, good. I mean, 
yeah, it would be great if people could just exercise and have fun and be like, wow, a day above dirt is a good day. This is great. I'm going to like ride my bike all day. Yes. It would be awesome if people would do that, but they don't because it has to, they, we all have to have it mean something and we all want the return for our investment. And, you know, we want to look a certain way because the result of that, it's like, I can't, I don't, I feel bad always going back to that, but there is this kind of obsession in our culture with discipline and whether you believe that discipline is what brings you a better body or a mind or a life or a job or financial, whatever. We are really obsessed with this um, one thing and we kind of change it into, we, we make it the goal for everything. And it's unfortunate that um, we let that tell us a story about how that means we have to show up in the world. And mm-hmm. instead of discipline being um, this really hardcore thing that we use to just push through everything, it, it is much more intelligent to be disciplined to the point where you are judicious about your expenditure of your energy and time and effort. It's oh, like, mm-hmm. That's discipline right there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. So I, cause I, my next, my next question was going to be, you know, what is, what would be a good mindset? Because obviously what, where I just, what I just kind of like threw out there of like, let's all just be happy and do, and do is not if someone's, you know, when, when we're so hyper-focused on being fitter, looking a certain way, et cetera, we're not just going to come all the way back. So like, what does that look like? Do you think being judici- judicious about like your time, your energy expenditure, your recovery, like what, what does that look like? Yeah. It's going to be different for everybody. You know, I think it's going to depend on sort of what you have, what you actually have time for and what you don't. I mean, like somebody who has a family with lots of kids and lots of commitments, you know, that is going to have to look different than um, somebody who doesn't have other sort of things pulling on them. I think it's important for all of us to have purpose, right? I think purpose is really important. And mm-hmm. um, I think there has to be a point though, particularly as we get older, is where we have to decouple purpose with athletics. Mm. The reason why that is, is because after a certain point, um, if you push too hard on that athletic thing to be your purpose, um, you may find that the rest of your life doesn't work very well because you might, some things may fall apart. You know, you might not be physically well or mentally well or all these different things. So we've got to kind of diversify. We've got to separate those two things out. And again, this conversation would be different for an elite athlete than it would be an age grouper. Right. Um, but the, but the, there's one piece that we both share, which is that, uh, sport is a wonderful part of our lives right? But we have to find a place where it's not everything we are. Um, It's a wonderful adjunct to our mental health care, but it is not our mental health care. Like we cannot have the sport take on responsibility of all that stuff. So I really believe in diversifying our interests. And the proof of that is that if you ask your daughter, your mother, your partner, your friends, what is the best thing about Sarah? They are, they don't care. Right. <laughs> They're not like what yeah. your splits are. They do yeah, not care. Yeah. They're not interested in like how fast you went and whatever. They're very proud of you and they love you. Right. But they do not care. Your kids are like, she makes the best pancakes. Your mom is like, she always remembers to, you know, bring, send me a card for Mother's Day, you know, whatever it is. So it's like remembering that there's a whole uh, community of people that, respect our athletic accomplishments, but they really just love who we are as people. So like we have that stuff, you know? So being careful about what our purpose is and what our, um, you know, what we want to do for athletic goals. Maybe it just, it has to shift and it's okay to do less. And it doesn't mean you're less than, it just means that you're making more space for 
um, longevity. You know, you want to be able to do it longer. You probably have to do less of it. Mm. Sometimes. I love that. I love that. Thinking about it through the eyes of the people that love you. Like, yes, they're like, they're happy for me when I get a squat PR, but that's not like, it's not like, and it would be disappointing. Right. It's like, Oh, Sarah's great. Cause of her squat PR. Like what? <laughs> like, like what are you talking no. about and it's yeah. a it's the same thing for that body image stuff by the way it's like right. Our right parents and friends don't love us because we're a size two they do not care you know they don't care they really don't they're just like whatever like let's go see a movie I don't know you know like yeah we gotta remember those things yeah. absolutely that's great and you also you did a study recently or maybe it's not recent anymore that looked at YouTube videos um and ultra endurance athletes I was just super curious about that. Like what was your lens and what did you find with those YouTube yeah. videos? Yeah. So, um, it's actually pretty recent. It was just, uh, published a couple weeks ago, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So what I did was, um, I had kind of a method for my madness here. What I wanted to do was sort of establish, uh, like what do, what do we, what do we mean when we're talking about ultra endurance culture? Because a lot of times in my work, I write about how compelling the culture is, right? And how people who do Ironman, it's like, that's your whole life. People who do ultramarathons, like that's your whole life. And it becomes very compelling, not only for people who've been doing it, but also for beginners. And it just really kind of sucks you in. And so I wanted to establish like, okay, if I'm a newbie or if I'm someone who's in the community and what am I absorbed in? If I am watching YouTube videos, which is what people do to like learn about how to do something, right? We all fire up a YouTube video and it has become a real clearinghouse of ideas. So what would happen if I just did a YouTube search on different types of ultra endurance events and I watched like a bunch in each category, what kind of themes would I extract from that stuff? And once I extract those themes, like do those hold up scientifically? Like, is that really what's happening? And so, um, you know, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and they were across a wide spectrum of ultra endurance sports. So it was triathlon for sure. There was ultra endurance cycling, um, people who do like channel swims and like really super long distance, like, um, open water swimming, ultra marathon, of course. And there were also people who were, I guess, like ultra endurance cyclists that don't necessarily enter events, but sort of do like, um, gosh, I can't remember her name. Is it, uh, oh my goodness. Um, someone's going to kick me in the head. Lail, Lail Wilcox. Oh, Lail Wilcox. She's been yeah, on the yeah. podcast before. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So she, she, you know, she was in one of the videos, Rich Roll was in one of the videos, Tim Olson, um, lots of people that, you know, we, we know, mm-hmm. um, oh, also there was like ultra endurance kayaking, which I didn't really realize, but oh. there's like a cross Atlantic, uh, kayaking kind of thing. So anyway, there was a lot of, a lot of different types of people. And so the, the, the themes that they talked about were, I mean, if you, it sounds like it makes it sound almost like not real. So like some of the things were just, it was constant reference to psycho, psychotic, crazy, right. Constant references to being out of their minds. Um, you have to be crazy to do this. These people are psycho, this kind of stuff. Um, constant reference to like this kind of magical thinking stuff. Like I just ran into the night and, you know, took off my pants and ran all the way to like half moon Bay, you know, like Dean Carnassus, like, you know, um, the weight just (laughs) fell off my body. It's like all this real, like, um, kind of romantic kind of language. There was also stuff about kind of like this, like weird sort of hero narrative, meaning like, 
these events that people are competing in, particularly, I mean, all of them, but in that video that was particularly exemplary of this, it was um, a video with a very well-known ultramarathoner, uh, a woman. And like the, 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 the words there, the way people were talking about what she was doing was like, as if she was re like reorganizing atoms. I mean, it was like this unbelievable thing that she was doing and it's like otherworldly and all these different things. And I'm like, this person is running, like this person is running like a lot of miles, but like this person is running on a course that somebody else kind of like put together and like every few miles, someone comes and brings her pancakes. Like that's not, I mean, when we talk about a hero narrative, yeah. right? we're talking about like wars, right? We're talking about like things that happen in, in like crisis situations, people that go to, um, you know, third world countries and do medical care, people who are under threat of bombs, people who are in a laboratory trying to cure cancer, people who are, you know, in um, city centers trying to like change crime behavior. This person is running through, mm -hmm. a, you know, and right. it becomes a little, you know, it becomes a little to me obtuse in some ways because it's just like, oh man. So then there's, there's a lot of, there's a couple of other themes in there too. Um, you know, just it's, it, when you start to look at it, the the kind of ways that we talk about these things, they become very sort of, uh, they become a little bit, it's just like hyperbole is sort of like an understatement. And then, um, <laughs> yeah. and then none of it really holds up scientifically, right? Like this whole thing about like, the phrase that I heard so many times and I can't stand like the pain cave, like, come on, give me a break. Like, right. it's just this whole thing of like um, this mythology that we've created around the sport. Now, granted, I love the sport always did. I'm like, if I had the ability to run those miles again, I would probably do it. You know, I'm like that weirdo. Do you know what I mean? I don't, as much as I can critically sit back and be like, these sports have a lot of language around them that is not realistic. I'm still enamored by it. Like I still want to do it. I still think it's cool. Um, and so we have to really look at that because there's not so many things in our lives that even though we know they might not be the best thing for us, we do it anyway. And a lot of them are ones that are illegal. <laughs> That's interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, or legal, but with, you know, bad effects. Or like, like consequences, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, Again, and and this this paper, um, just to take it one step further, this paper goes into some social cultural background of like why we are obsessed with ultra endurance, even if you're not in the community. A lot of it has to do with things around, and I, I'm going to say this term, but not to be scared. It's like the the concept is about neoliberalism, which is this idea that we have to self service our own healthcare, and so because like our healthcare system has failed us, and so we have to self service our own healthcare. So we tend to sort of like put up on a pedestal, these people who to us have achieved this, like, you know, very high level of health. Right. And that's a whole thing. Again, that's a whole other podcast. But um, the, the problem with that is that that breaks down very quickly when we realize that not all of these sports are healthy. Yes. So, yeah. That's so interesting. You bring it Cause I'm like, Oh yeah. Right. Sometimes even for myself, I find like people from the outside are perceiving my achievements in Ironman in a way that I'm not entirely comfortable with, but I don't want to take on every time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm not going to yes. challenge them, but it's yeah. just like narrative around like the grit and determination and da, 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 da. like, and I, I'm like, well, 
kinda, but like also, <laughs> um, it's a very like sport and you kind of mentioned this, but like, it's a very safe, almost like a safe place. Like someone is bringing you pancakes, like kind of sometimes literally, but figuratively, like there's a, there's a, co- you're training for a specific thing. You know how long it is, you know how to do the training, you have support, you do, t- and life isn't like that. Right. And so like, I almost see it as like, okay, that's this kind of like microcosm where I learned some great things for my later life, but it's not like in and of itself does not feel to me like, and I, I, a lot of people are going to like, may shoot me for saying this, like, does not feel like the greatest achievement. Thank you for saying that. Like, Like there are a lot of other things in the world that are more unknown you know, that you can go and explore. You have to make decisions on your feet all the time. You, you know, it's like, there's so many more, uh, there's so many other things that I feel like we should almost appreciate at least equally as we do things like endurance sport and even what I do now CrossFit, like that we should put on the same pedestal almost, you know, like not to knock sport down, but like, let's lift some other things up that are equally amazing achievements. Right. And not to take away like your incredible talent and who you are as a person, because to be able to achieve what you do, I mean, that really requires some outstanding personal characteristics. So let's definitely say that, but you are, you still have those outstanding personal characteristics. If you were never an athlete, they would make you really amazing at something else. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause you're, it just means you're awesome. And it it means you're going to be awesome at different things, you know? So if you're not so much an athlete anymore, but you're still, you're awesome at something else, like you're you're still awesome. So, you know? Um, Yeah. I love that. That's so interesting. Okay. uh, What do you wish? Let's, you know, like for our audience, like what do you wish after all the studies that you've done, every endurance athlete, or even any athlete who's listening to this, maybe thinking, I might be a little obsessive or maybe this could be a little more healthy regardless of their sport. Like what do you wish they knew about mental health? Yeah. So I wish that people knew that you can support your mental health, um, by sleeping enough mm-hmm. that you could support your mental health by eating enough. Um, and that when you hear a voice in your head that tells you, you need to push harder or let's say eat less or that you don't need that extra hour of sleep. Like, I wish that there was like a little warning flag that will fly up in people's heads. Um, Because anytime we have thought processes that are antithetical to human success and like viability, that's where we really have to pay attention. So if you hear yourself- I love that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you hear yourself having thoughts that are not biologically correct, like in order for me to be successful here, I should take in less food. And- Right, I should get up at 4 a.m. every day. You don't, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I just also want to be clear here that like, I'm speaking specifically to athletes, right? So if I was having this conversation with the general public, it it may sound quite different, but the truth is, is that the majority of health information that um, athletes are listening to is crafted for a person that they are not. It's crafted for the general public, a person who needs different things than they do. Too bad that we don't realize that we need to filter that stuff out. So I wish that people would pay more attention to their thoughts around those things. Like I said, eat more, sleep more. Um, and just really, really, really think about, um, this community that we're in after a while becomes normal in terms of like volumes, intensities, races, schedules, training. It's, you need a little bit of a check every now and then a reality check, um, to see, step back a little bit and see, 
is this appropriate for me, um, who I am, or am I watching somebody on social media that's kind of like dictating what I should be doing or Strava or Strava. Oh God. Mm. Training. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a thing. Yeah, <laughs> Watching other sure. people. Yeah. For sure. Um amazing. Well, Jill, thank you so, so much. This has been so fun and informative. And um, yeah, really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing and would love to catch up again sometime as well. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I would love to come back. Um, so many things to talk about. Uh and always like more research happening. So for sure. It was great. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedda's have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedda's.com and it will all be in the show notes. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% Mulberry Silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. 
Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match. And then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there.